What does it mean to be forgiven? I think many of us have a concept and a construct in our head that is probably flawed. And part of grace is the understanding of what forgiveness is and what it means to receive it and live in it. Not just take it for the here and now, but let it speak into your life over time. We're going to talk about that today as we lean in on our grace series into week two. But before we do that, um, I feel like I should say it's like many of you know, I was raised in Western Colorado and California. I moved in between there a number of times. But when it came time for me to learn how to drive and go to driver's training, I went to driver's training in San Diego. Uh, coach Singer, the basketball coach, was the teacher, did a marvelous job. I remember sitting in class in San Diego, and he said, bridges ice up first. And I'm like... What part of San Diego does that apply to, right? It's just, not, it didn't make sense. And then they started talking about how you drive on snow. And I'm like, San Diego. Like, it just didn't make sense. Like, you should teach us how to drive on eight-lane freeways. I grew up, my first driving experiences were more like Chicago. So I really appreciate when I get to go to Chicago and people verbally abuse me behind the wheel because I've been doing that to them in my heart all the time. Like, it's hard for me in a Dutch love community where people pull up to a four-way stop and like, now you go, now you go. And I'm like, somebody drive for the love of driver's training, the person who, and I'm like pulling around people. I struggle with your kindness. Um, but my first winter here, had a Ford F-150, it was black, it was shiny, it was lovely. It was a two-wheel drive, mistake number one. And um, I pull out into the snow, felt very adventurous. Um, it got very unadventurous, you know, cause I'm like, okay, how's this work? I find out that a truck with a light rear end that's rear-wheel drive is magical. And um, I, I'm driving down the road and the back end, you know how it can just kinda kick loose a little? Well, if you're from San Diego, that doesn't happen. So I was like, oh, you know, that's kind of fun, you know. And it does. And then I'm like, oh, okay. So I did what every good California driver does in snow. I punched it, downshifted, and cut the other way really hard. I did the infamous trick of overcorrecting. And when she came back around, there was no saving it. I kicked loose this first time. When I came back around the second time, I was on a tilt-a-whirl. Remember that? I'm going to eat a turkey leg and go on a tilt-a-whirl. It was that kind of ride. You just get done and you're sick. I was kind of in a ditch, and I got out because I... I was like, I'm getting out of this myself. And I, I crawled out of the ditch, you know, we got out, and, um, and I was like, what just happened? But I overcorrected. You know that if you go into that kind of slide, you steer into it, not against it. It's very, you know, Doc Hudson, Lightning McQueen. It's a pretty basic rule of driving. And I learned that the hard way. You don't overcorrect. Hold on to that thought as we dive in. To, Jane, uh, to Galatians chapter two, and we talk about grace and what it means to be forgiven. When the apostle Paul wrote this letter in 41 to 44 AD, he wrote it to the church of Galatia, a city in the province of Turkey, modern day Turkey, and what he did was he told them that the people who had taken the gospel that he taught them and added a bunch of Jewish laws and rules to it were lying. That was not what was supposed to happen. Grace is something you receive. Grace is the unmerited or undeserved favor of God extended to you as a free gift that you could never earn or deserve except for the fact that he just loves you and gave it. That's grace. 
the undeserved favor of God. And Paul was trying to get the church to see that and understand that the rules being forced on them had nothing to do with their salvation. So the context of chapter two in Galatians, hopefully you did those devotions this week, um, but the context of chapter two in Galatians is this, that the apostle Paul had gone and he was meeting with the disciples. Now the disciples, the the men who had walked with Jesus for three years, uh, John, James, uh, Andrew, Thomas, Peter, Philip, the disciples of Jesus Christ. These 12 men that that had walked with Jesus, um, 11 of them, Judas betrayed Jesus, but the 11 that were left, Paul goes and meets with them and he does one thing. He wants to make sure that the gospel he received from Jesus himself lined up with the gospel they received in their three years with Jesus. And indeed it did. And what Paul did with that is he knew, knowing that um, a gospel of not grace, but good works, kind of a morality had crept in, do these things, follow these traditions, had crept into the church of Galatia. They had watched them and they snuck in and they made this church that was once free in Christ bound to a bunch of rules and traditions by saying there's more to it. There were more rules, there were more requirements to your salvation that maybe Paul didn't teach you. So Paul went to make sure from the disciples he had the pure gospel because he was gonna go back to the Galatians and let them know it. But he wanted to confirm what he had seen. Haven't, haven't we done this before? We, we in some way tell people, you're forgiven, but you need to do this, this, and this. We lay on them some heavy burden or requirement that makes them feel like they need to carry something or do something or behave in such a way as to earn their salvation. The Foundry Church does not believe it because primarily the disciples and Jesus Christ and Paul did not believe it. They did not believe that there was something you could do to earn your salvation. You could receive it by grace and faith alone. And here's the thing. The legalism that crept in, crept into the early church. I hear people say this all the time. They'll be like, you know, I just want to be, you know, that early book of Acts church. I'm like, awesome, study Galatians. They do what we do. They made a bunch of moral rules and codes and had to follow them to earn their salvation and they had to be corrected in it. The earliest church, the first century church, did this, but not just the first century church. Peter, one of the disciples, like Peter, there's really two disciples that were closest to Jesus Christ. There was Peter and there was John. Peter had this this legalism take hold in his own life, life. Jesus had walked with Peter. He had redeemed Peter. Then when Peter betrays, you know, and denies him, Jesus restores him. He shows him unmerited favor, undeserved favor, and he even changes his name. He's like, your name's not Simon anymore. I'm gonna call you Peter, Petros. It means rock, and on this rock, I'm gonna build my church, and the gates of hell won't prevail against it. That's a pretty big compliment for a guy who falls into legalism within the first century. So if it can happen to Peter, we should have our guard up. He walked with Jesus and he fell into it. Paul tells us in Galatians chapter two that he had to have a confrontation with Peter. He had to confront Peter and say to him, dude, what are you doing? What are you doing? You're polluting the gospel of grace with a gospel of works. You're losing the fact that Jesus paid for his sins by his life, his death, and his resurrection, and you are putting into the gospel of grace a sense of having to earn it. That is not 
the gospel. And there was a confrontation. And I love how people, like many of us, want to be that, that early church of Acts. But I want to tell you something. Peter and Paul weren't like, I formally disagree. No. They were heated. It was intense. Peter goes up, nose to nose with Paul, and calls him out. He lets him know in no uncertain terms what he's teaching is antithetical to the gospel Jesus taught Peter, and that Peter is out of line. And why was he out of line? Because when he lived with the Gentiles, he ate what, ate what they ate. He didn't observe all the Jewish customs. I'm wondering if Peter had bacon for the first time, because for Jewish people, it's unclean, and for Peter's like, oh, unclean but lovely, right? I just wonder when that happened. But, um, but he's living among the Gentiles, and he's not bound by the Jewish law, but when some of the Jewish people come in, Peter, worried about what they think, starts following the customs. And Paul goes toe-to-toe and says, no, none of that. You're not gonna live according to the law to please them. You're gonna live according to the grace of Jesus Christ that's been secured for you by Jesus You're not living by a false morality, some code that gives you something because Peter stopped living in freedom until Paul confronted him. And it's important that we know that, that Paul had to confront him in order to restore him. I wanna look at one verse from uh, chapter two, verse 20, that the apostle Paul wrote to Galatians. So Galatians chapter two, verse 20 says this, I have been crucified with Christ. Therefore, I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. So just let these words wash back over you as I say it. I have been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. I, the life I live now in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. There's, there's some things going on in that that make you go, well, how'd you get there, Paul? How do you know that he loves you? How do you know this? Let's just go on a little road trip together. Let's go back in time to the Temple Mount. And there's a procession of people leaving the Temple Mount There's one guy who's being forcibly kind of drugged along. His name's Stephen. There's a series of other men, and they are dressed formally in their Hebraic robes. They're Pharisees and Sadducees. There's another guy with them who's walking along whose name is Saul, and he's with them, and he holds the coats of the men who take stones and throw them at Stephen, who is the very first man to ever die for the Christian faith outside of Jesus Christ. Stephen was the first martyr of the church in Acts chapter nine. You can read it, it's a beautiful story. But the one who held their coats was named Saul. And Saul was a Hebrew's Hebrew. He knew the law, which means he could quote for you Genesis through Malachi without stopping. He knew the law, the law, the prophets, he knew it all. He had it all up here. He knew the laws he had to live into. And he hated the sect of Christianity. He hated it so much that after the killing of Stephen, the persecution against the early church became so intense that the chief priests gave letters to this young man named Saul who took a group of men with him and on his donkey rode out into the mountains and down to the Damascus plain of Syria where he would take the letters and was going to 
to deliver them and arrest any Jews who had been following this Jesus. He was gonna arrest them, torture them, and persecute them, possibly put them to death for insurrection against the legal code that the Jews lived by. That's Saul. On his way, he gets knocked off his donkey, laying on the ground by a bright light, and the bright light speaks to him and says these words, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? And he goes, who are you? He says, I am Jesus, whom you persecute. Get on your donkey and let your friends guide you to Damascus, and there I will send someone to attend to you. Paul goes to Damascus. In Damascus, there is a faithful Christian named Ananias, and he is there, and he is in prayer, and the Lord speaks to him and says, I want you to get up and go to this place where Saul is waiting for you. This is one of those moments, a a cultural moment for us would be like when you're talking to somebody on your phone, on your mobile, and you're talking, and they're like, yeah, and the really important part was, like, you get it? You kind of broke up. I think Ananias had a broke up moment. (laughs) Wait a minute. You said Saul, the guy who's killing us. I get it. Sometimes there's a misspeak, no biggie. God's like, no, no, no. Go to Saul. Yes, the one who's persecuting the church, go to him. Ananias goes to Saul. He kneels down by his bed and he says, Brother Saul. And he walks him through what's going on. He prays for him. Something like scales fall off the eyes of Saul. And Saul becomes the apostle. Paul, the man who hunted the church and killed the church, ends up writing two-thirds of the New Testament. The one who followed the code now understands grace to a level we can scarcely imagine. And here's the thing. The reason Paul knows what the gospel of grace is is because his sins were so infinitely large. He not only celebrated the killing of the people who followed Jesus, he actively participated in their harm and their demise. He hated them. He hated Jesus. He hated his followers, and he wanted to put an end to it. He understands what it is to be forgiven much. Maybe you need to know what that feels like what it is to be forgiven much. Maybe you need to know that because Paul knows that his sins were so great against the very Son of God that there is no moral code that could redeem him into heaven. That no matter all the good he did, he was doomed to hell for what he did to the Son of God unless the Son of God so loved him that he died for him. Paul gets grace and he gets it really clearly. But because of Paul's conversion and subsequent loyalty to Jesus Christ, he lost everything. Remember, he was a Hebrew's Hebrew. He was known by name by the chief priests. He knew the law inside and out, and now they hate him. Now they want to persecute him. Now he's an apostate. He's a heretic. He's somebody who is going against what the Jewish people uphold. The Jewish people know that their temple has a spot in it called the Holy of Holies, where the Ark of the covenant is. It's behind a huge curtain and the law of God is in it. And once a year, a priest, a high priest is chosen by the casting of lots to go in there on Yom Kippur, the day of atonement. Once a year, people can go into, a specific person can go into the Holy of Holies. And what is Paul saying? Paul is saying that I've been crucified with Christ, so I no longer live, but The Son of God lives in me. What he's saying is, but I am the Holy of Holies. I am the place where God chose to reside. He is filled with the Holy Spirit. 
That is, that is antithetical to the Jewish faith. The two can't live in, in tandem. One hates that. Why? Because they have a structure, a legal structure that demands adherence. And grace is something that demands obedience and relationship and understanding of the great gift of salvation. Paul understood it, and he understood it beautifully. The reality is, like Paul, we need to know what forgiveness is if we're truly gonna live. We need to know, and I want you to hear this, you're forgivable, you are forgivable. Your sins are not so great. Your, your, your wrongs, your, your brokenness, your hidden and known sins are not so great that the grace of God in the blood of Jesus Christ cannot overcome and redeem you, amen? We need to know this is true. We need to know the heart which with Paul is speaking to his church. And we need to trust that even when we, like Peter, maybe get a little legalistic, the Spirit of God will beckon us back to the gospel of grace. To the gospel of grace. Sometimes God even uses not just his spirit, but other Christians like he did with Paul and Peter to call us away from legalism. Peter most certainly felt ashamed. I think Peter felt ashamed a lot. If you read the Gospels with Peter, that poor guy, I can identify with Peter. He gets in a lot of trouble. But he does really good things, right? And th thank God for the conflict between godly people who one knows the truth and the other string and they speak up and speak into this. So how does this apply in our life? I would say this. When we look at the words, I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, it tells me this, that when Paul says that, there is an implied obedience for you and for me that we have to live a life that dies to what we want to be perceived. And we have to let go of our former shame. There are those of us in this room who carry baggage from our past that the blood of Christ redeemed and you carry the shame of it forward. You live under the shame of who you were, even though Christ forgave you from those sins and called you and is making you into his image, you carry the shame of it, and here's the thing. When we carry that shame, we are not dying to what we want to be perceived. There is a tremendous freedom in not being ashamed of your sin. I'm not proud of my sin, but it's not mine to bear. It is in Christ, and I am stepping away from every sin he convicts me of. And I'm not owned by that shame, but that's a tough road to walk. But here's the thing. If we are crucified with Christ and no longer live, our shame died with us. Do not be ashamed of who you are unless you're unrepentantly, secretly still being that. You should be convicted of that sin, but you should never be ashamed for the sin you confessed and were forgiven of in Christ Jesus. That's not yours to bear because shame will keep you from obeying God. Shame tells us all the time, I could do that, but I just, I mean, I know who I was, so I probably can't. And we'll mumble our way out of obedience. We won't obey God. Shame will keep us from speaking up to one another. The Apostle Paul persecuted, murdered, and harmed the church. Who is he to ever confront Peter? 
the rock on whom Jesus would build the church. Who is he? You know who he is? He's a guy who wasn't owned by his past. He was a guy who knew who he was presently in Christ Jesus. And so he could stand up to the very rock on which Jesus would build the church and say, you're getting it wrong. Because he wasn't ashamed of who he was. He knew that even his shame could be redeemed and point to the glory of Jesus Christ. We can't let our shame keep us from protecting one another. It goes on to say, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. When we experience forgiveness, it's freedom. There is a freedom that comes in being forgiven that is just, I, I, there, there just aren't words. It's so sweet and so good to know that your past no longer speaks and informs your future. That who you were can be remade. And the long road of discipleship and changing and growing is a road you can walk down because the Spirit of God lives in you. You're filled. You're the temple of the Holy Spirit. You can walk that road with God's help and participation. Christ lives in me. When we experience it, that freedom of forgiveness, we are set free from our past. And here's the thing. We are free to live for Jesus Christ as he calls us. We're free to live as he calls us, not what we call ourselves. We are free to live in him. Instead of being consumed with what a Christian should look like, we can be consumed with what Jesus says a Christian should be. And we can get over appearances and get into living. We can truly be alive. But here's where it happens, right? We're all fairly, I would say, most of us are young in the faith. And what do we do? Well, let's go back to the opener. What do you do when, you know, you're morally, your, your tail end kicks loose? You overcorrect, don't you? You're like, oh, that, that's not the way it should be. You like go all wrong, you go sideways, you overcorrect and end up in a ditch, and you're sitting there going, oh, I overcompensated. And what do we do when we overcompensate with grace? We put up hard boundaries and we create a morality that has nothing to do with the gospel. We create a morality that isn't life-giving. When we forget we are forgiven and we stop living in the freedom of Christ, we overcompensate to look the part and we do it based out of our past shame, not our current identity in Christ. And we end up weighing ourselves down, burdened, and carrying what is not ours to bear, period. Hebrews 12.1 says it this way. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us then throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles and let us run. Let us run with perseverance. The race marked out for us. Let us, this is the way I would say it, let us live the life that God purposed us to make. Paul says, let us run that race with perseverance. Let us do this. It's marked out for us by God. God has a plan. He has a purpose, and he knew your sin and shame, yet the plan and purpose remain. So how does sin and shame easily entangle us? Let's see if you've ever done this before. I know I have. You've, um, you're a Christian, and things are good, right? And you've got a friend who's maybe struggling. 
let's say they're struggling with addiction or, or drunkenness again or, or something, and you're like, okay, I think I'm going to have a talk with them. I'm going to have a talk with them. And the devil, crafty as he is, says to you, should you really speak into that? I mean, seriously. Read your yearbook. Remember who you were? You're a party animal. Remember who you were? You remember how, how long you struggled with drunkenness? And you're like, oh, man. You are super duper right, the devil. Um, you're right. I am. I really, really struggled with drunkenness. You're right. I, I don't know what to do with it. And you sit there and you, and you ruminate and you think and you, and you just kind of memorize the words of the devil in your life. You, you were a drunk too, so why should you ever speak? You're like, you're right. But you know what I'm going to do? No. No, I'm not a drunk anymore. Like, I don't do that anymore. So you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to prove everybody wrong. I'm going to live a life full of really, really good behavior. I am going to live, Mother Teresa is going to look at me and think, oh, look at that good behavior. And I'm going to put into my life all these good behaviors, all these things that look the part. And I'm going to feel so good about who I am because of what I'm doing. I'm gonna feel so good and I'm finally gonna be free. So I'm gonna hook this to me as well. And then, maybe you need to talk to one of your kids about lust because we're in a digital age and their phones are a gateway to hell itself with all that's on them. And you're like, I should probably speak into their life and just let them know some of the boundaries that I live with because and that's when the devil, crafty as he is, speaks into your ear. Are you serious? You know how long you struggled with lust. Do you, are you sure you're done struggling with lust? Come on. You're kind of a weirdo. A little bit of a pervert back in the day, weren't you? And maybe back in the day was yesterday. You're like, no, I'm forgiven. Yeah, but let's be honest. You are, but you're pretty weird pretty into some, some stuff. And you're like, you know what? You're right. You're right. And not only were you into some stuff, but um, you were pretty cocky and you were pretty arrogant. And you, uh, you thought yourself better than you actually are. So you take for yourself and you fashion a new chain. And that new chain is just, it's, it's your lust. It's your pride. And it's just right there. It lives in your life now, that shame of who you were, that you can't get rid of the mistakes you made, the things you were. And you're sitting there and you're like, okay, yeah, maybe that's true. But here's the deal. Um, I, I'm not like that anymore. I'm not like that. And let me tell you, not only am I not like that, I'm not like that because I know some of the weirdos. I'm in a men's group or I'm in a women's group and I know what they struggle with. And you know what? It's not my fault that like, you know, Shannon or Barbara or Mike or whoever it is, is a weirdo too. Why aren't they in any trouble? You know what? Maybe I should tell my friends, yeah, I've got my issues, but they've got problems. And we get into judgment and slander because we don't look nearly as bad when we hold ourselves up against this person who's so jacked up. And you're like, oh, yeah, that's it. That's how I'm gonna do this. That's how I'm gonna live this life. I'm gonna judge people. I'm gonna do really good things because I, yeah, I just, I know what I was. Somebody's gotta reconcile it, right? Something has to happen. And then you find yourself being reminded of that old temper 
that used to come up and how people used to say, man, remember how mad you used to get about everything? How you'd throw stuff? How you punch that one guy? Oh, yeah, I remember. Or your friends, maybe your kids. Say, remember how you used to lose your temper over nothing? Yeah, it's true. Remember how you used to like freak out at us because the kitchen wasn't clean? Remember how you used to yell at us? And the devil, crafty as he is, brings back those conversations. And you put your shame on and you stand there as a Christian and the words to that verse make no sense. Let us run with perseverance. The race, the purpose of God that is marked out for us. And you're like, how? How could I ever run that wearing my past? And here's the thing, church. Jesus Christ did not die for you and I to pack this garbage around through the rest of our life. Jesus Christ died for it to be your past, not your future. It is a lie from the pit of hell that you are called to run a race bearing that garbage. He died, not you. He died. His all-sufficient death and resurrection frees you from that mess of shame and hopelessness. That Carrying that is not redemptive, it's not hopeful, it's not gracious, it's shame. And your shame is directly linked to your sin. It is forgiven, period. Hear it, church. Hear it to the one sitting out there today who thinks to themselves, I could never be forgiven. A lie from the pit of hell is keeping you from one thing, running the race that was marked out for you, not by this world, but by God himself, knit together in your mother's womb with the purposes of God. And you're gonna let your shame define who you are when Jesus Christ has spoken that word over you? Grace, the unmerited favor of God to tell you, to tell me that enough is enough. That is our past. He is our future. Come on, amen? I'm tired of a church that feels like we have to live up to something. We don't live by a moral code. Our moral code is transformed. We live freely in the grace of God, and we know this, that our slavery to our past are chains of our making, not his. He broke every chain. He set the captives free, and he was talking to you. He was talking to me. And we need to throw off everything that hinders, every sin that so easily entangles, and we need to run with perseverance. The race, the purposes of God marked out for you and me. And I'll tell you this, we run that race, this world changes. We run that race free of our past, this world changes. Because when you experience grace, you experience in some measure the goodness of God that sets you free from the cruelty and the tyranny of your past. I know you feel ashamed. I feel ashamed. But what I don't feel is bound to it. I don't feel bound to it. So I invite you today. Believe the words of Jesus Believe the words of the one who tried to kill his followers and met him. There is nothing you can do, have done, or will do that will separate you from the love of God, which is yours in Christ Jesus. There, there alone lives grace in Christ Jesus. We are forgiven in him once for all. The all-sufficient life, death, and resurrection of Christ sets us free from the sin and shame to be the men and women he called us to be.
Lord Jesus Christ. We, your church, gather to this truth, and this truth is found at the foot of the cross. And we can say today that something in us is well. What has been broken is well because we know this, that your death defeated our past. It redeemed us and forgave our sin. And it broke the bonds of shame off of us. Lord Jesus, we pray, set us free to live as you live, filled with your spirit and gracious. Let us be gracious, God, not bound to a moral code, but bound to the love of God, which is ours in you, Lord Jesus Christ. And let it be well for us who maybe have been weighed down for too long. May the past be set aside. And may our souls experience the closeness and communion with you that come only through a faithful confession of sin, repentance, and following our Savior. In whose name we pray, amen. Please stand, sing with me. If it's not well with your soul this morning, if you're sitting in here and you're like, dude, I am bound to everything. I've never been forgiven. I've never been set free. I would love for you to come down after the service. I would love to pray with you and let you experience what it is to be set free. Don't bear it anymore. There's many of you in the church who wonder like, okay, how do I live this life? And one of the things we've tried to do at the Foundry is to give you an opportunity to stay connected, not just to us, but to the word of God. There's devotions when you leave today. Grab those, not because you have to, but to be in the word of God is to experience in real tangible ways his grace and goodness. Grab those devotions. We make them and we put them out for you. Take them with you. If you're not in a group and you don't know what it's like to be held accountable, to love, to talk through these things with a group of other Christians, I would invite you, text us 94,000 at Live 11 and just say, I would like to try a group's mixer. I'd like to see what it's like. You're not bound to it for life, but you can try it and see what it's like to live among a community that is grace-filled and wants to celebrate, care, and walk with you. Church, this is about a relationship with Jesus Christ and his church. And his love for you is seen in the fact that not only did he live, die, and rise again, save you from your sins, but then he gave you a church that needs you, loves you, and wants to be in relationship with you. So I invite you, jump in and be a part wholeheartedly with the best gift God ever gave to this world, his son Jesus Christ and the church, his bride. And do so unapologetically. If you don't know Jesus, don't leave here without coming down and seeing me. I would love to pray with you at the end of the service. Until we see each other again, may the Lord bless you. May the Lord keep you. May the Lord cause his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face towards you and give you his peace. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Normally I say it's time for the church to leave the building, but why don't you at least say hi and get to know each other a little bit. You don't have to stand closer than six feet. Go get some coffee. There's plenty of room. Say hi. Get to know each other. You are dismissed.